this is going to be one of those sermons, I think, that might leave you with a lot of questions. There are topics that will be brought up that are brought up in this passage, and it would be impossible for me to say everything that there is to say about each of them, and there's a lot. So if you get to the end of this message and you have a lot of questions that you feel are unanswered, I think that's pretty normal. And I'd also let you know that over the next couple chapters in 1 Corinthians, a lot of those questions are most likely, they're going to be answered. But if we're going to stick to just what the text says and not branch off into tangents and end up talking about things that aren't actually here in depth and aren't there as the main point, then that leads to what we're going to have today. Times where you're going to have questions that just won't get answered in this text. So that's okay. wanted to prepare you for that. For those of you who might be just joining us in this series that we're in, or for those of you who've been here all along, let me just give a reminder of the context. This is the 38th sermon that I've preached as we're going through 1 Corinthians, and we still have a ways to go. The verses of the Bible that we'll be studying this morning, they are part of a long letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in Corinth in Greece in the first century. And he had many things to write to him about. That's why this letter is as long as it is. And we're at the point in his letter where Paul is addressing some problems that were showing up in their church as they gathered together for worship on a Sunday. And one of the issues that they had, it was disunity. And it was made obvious when they would come together and certain people or certain ministries were being openly valued more than others. And so the point that Paul made in the verses just before today's text was that the one body of Christ is made up of many members and each member is valuable and important. That's the point that he has just made. And that is true for the universal church, that is Christians everywhere and from everywhere, and that is true for a local church like this. We are one body made up of many members, that is each of us, and you are all, you are equally valuable, and you are all equally important. And in Corinth, that is exactly what they needed to hear. That is what the more publicly gifted needed to hear and the more privately gifted needed to hear. Some had gifts and abilities that were very public and they were out in the open and everybody saw that and saw them. And, and then there were others who were more privately gifted and, and their abilities and their talents and their gifts was a more behind the scenes. And so you had some who were feeling superior, who were looking down on others and they needed to hear all members of the body are important and valuable. 
Likewise, those who felt inferior and struggling with maybe restlessness or anxiety, they also needed to hear, hey, each member of the body of Christ is equally important, is equally valuable. It's a good reminder for us as well. So I'd like to do two more just quick things now before praying. First, to remind you of a definition of what a spiritual gift is. And then second, to summarize what Paul's main point is in our, in our verses today, which I normally wouldn't do. But I think it's going to be helpful with this particular text to get a summary of his main point at the very beginning. To have that in your mind as we go along. So first, what is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is a unique ability given by God for the building up of His church. So when you hear about and you hear today about spiritual gifts, that is something that God, by the Holy Spirit, that is a special ability that He might give to someone that they are to use for the good of others, specifically for the good of the church. And now second, here's the point of today's passage. God is sovereign over His church. That's a broad statement. God is sovereign over His church. Now more specifically, God decides in His church, God decides who gets what spiritual gift. God decides that. We don't, God does. In His church, God decides who gets what spiritual gift. Now the implication of that is that it is good to desire spiritual gifts. But, and here will be his final point in verse 31, what is more important is pursuing love. What is most important is pursuing love. Spiritual gifts should not be our focus, but rather spiritual fruit. Not the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. All good, all important, but Paul will make a point to this church that was valuing some gifts over others, that had a real preoccupation with the talents and the abilities that people had in that church. And Paul will make the point, it's good to desire spiritual gifts, but more important than the gifts of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. I read this quote by Charles Simeon this week. He wrote, My endeavor, and he was a great preacher, and he wrote, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and to trust, and, and to not, I'm sorry, thrust in what I think might be there. Let me read that again. He said, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there, and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, 
never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. So that would be my goal this morning. And I read that this week. I thought that is so important. It's part of why I gave that disclaimer at the beginning of the sermon. It's so important that we draw out of this text just and exactly what is in this text and not put anything else into it that's not there. I'm going to need God's help to do that. And all of us are going to need God's help, the Spirit's help. If we're going to draw anything out of these verses, we need His help. So will you please bow your heads with me and pray. Our Father in heaven, help us. Help me, God, to preach and help us all to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and if you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 902. Let's get started in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That is a summary of the verses just before. If you were here last Sunday, that is a summary of what we studied and what was said clearly in verse 12, again in verse 14, again in verse 20, and now here in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. There is one addition here. And the addition to this summary is that Paul explicitly defines the church as the body of Christ. Another term for the church in the Bible is the body of Christ. That means that Christ is the head and we as his people are his body. And that means that Christ is our ultimate authority. So that's what he brings to mind when he calls the church the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. That means that he is our head. And to say that he is our head means that he is in authority over the church, over every church. 1 Peter 5.4 calls Jesus the chief shepherd. That means senior pastor. He is the chief shepherd in authority over every church. Ephesians 1, verse 22 says, And He, that is God, the Father, put all things under His, that is Jesus, under His feet. And in Him, all things hold together. He is the head over all things to the church, which is His body. Authority. Colossians 1.17 says the same thing. And He, that is Jesus, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. So we are members of the body of Christ. If you are here and you are a Christian, then you are a member of the body of Christ. And that means that Christ is your head. He is your Lord. He is in authority over me. 
He is in authority over you. So next now, in verse 28, so what has God done with this body of Christ? God is in ultimate authority, and now we're told in verse 28 what He has done in the church. God has appointed. God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So, what has God done in the body of Christ? What has God done among the members of His church? And the answer is, He has appointed gifted people. Isn't that what we read in verse 28? He has appointed And then we have a list of gifted people. God is sovereign. God is in charge. Christ is head of the church. God has arranged His church, was the word in verse 18. He has composed His church, is the word He used in verse 24. And here in verse 28, God has appointed in the church gifted people. Well, let me ask you a question. Who among us as Christians are among those who are gifted? Should we have the gifted people raise their hand? And then the non-gifted people also raise their hand? That's some of what was going on in the church at Corinth. It didn't go well. Who's gifted? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, just earlier in this chapter, Paul wrote, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then maybe Peter is even more clear in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, when he says, as each has received a gift. And then he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So if you're a Christian, God has uniquely gifted you to build up His church. That is a fact. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, Christian, and He gives you abilities and gifts that you would not otherwise have, and He gives you those abilities so that you could serve others, so that you could build up the church. They are for the common good. So according to this verse, what God has done and God is doing among His people and in His church is He is appointing. He is appointing people. That's really important to remember. That means that at the end of the day, we don't appoint people. At the end of the day, we don't call people. It would be better for us to think of it like this. Our job is to surface and affirm those whom God has called. God, who are you appointing? God, who are you calling? Who do you appoint in this church to serve in this way? Who are you calling to serve in this church in this way? 
That's not something we do according to our own desires and our own qualifications. We go to the Word and find God's desires and His lists of qualifications and then look out among us and say, so who is it that God is calling? Who is it that God is appointing? And then a church would be wise to have some sort of process where they look to affirm that and to test that and to see if they're understanding correctly who that is. But it's not something that is conceived in our mind. It is something that God is up to. Daniel 2.21 Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and he gives knowledge to those who have understanding. Who removes kings? Who sets them up? God does. That doesn't mean that God does not use means like voting. God uses means, but God's will is always done. God is sovereign. That's outside of His church. And of course He is sovereign. We're reminded here in His own church. Listen to Acts 20.28. This is Paul, and he is speaking to the elders, the pastors at Ephesus, and he gives them this instruction. Acts 20.28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. That's a great thing to say to a pastor. Pay attention to yourself, your own life, and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You hear the way he says that? Wait, I thought they voted in the pastor. Well, maybe they did. I thought they appointed the pastor. Well, maybe they did. That was the means that God used. But who made them overseers in that church? Paul says the Holy Spirit. You're not accountable to the people as much as you are accountable to God is the point he's making. So he draws that out. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So people do not choose. Look at these verses to follow, these words to follow. That means that people do not choose to be apostles, prophets, or teachers. God appoints them. God is sovereign over His church. So let's look more closely now at these gifted people that God appoints. And here's where the questions are going to come up, right? We don't have time to get into this as much as we might like to. We'll get into it much more in chapter 14 where a lot of this is fleshed out, especially in regards to prophecy and prophets and speaking in tongues. But we'll have to talk a little about it because it's here. So we have some gifted people that God appoints. Paul lists eight of them. This is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Listen, there is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts in your Bible. Some of you took that test a long time ago, right? You said the sinner's prayer, and then the next thing they did was hand you like this, you know, this SAT-looking thing, and there was a Scantron sheet, and you filled in the bubbles. 
I like it when it rains. I like it when the sun is out. I, I like to be around outgoing people. I like to be around not outgoing people. I'm extroverted. I'm introverted. And at the end, right, it tells you what your spiritual gift is, and then it tells you what ministry you're supposed to serve in. Kind of strange. There is not a list of spiritual gifts in the Bible. What you have are four lists. Maybe you've heard of these. They're the twelves and the fours. So you got a list in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, and then you got a list in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. But these are just examples that are being given. These are just different ways that they knew that the Holy Spirit was gifting people in the church to serve. So we've got just a representative list here. And the first three, they are ranked. Look, the rest of them are not. But the first three are ranked in order of authority in the church. They're listed in the same exact order in Ephesians 4.11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, he adds evangelists there. And then the shepherds and teachers. Apostles, first. Prophets, second. Teachers, third. And these are, as we read the rest of this letter and other letters, these are positions of leadership. These were positions of leadership in the church. So, let's look at each one of them. So, first we have, he gave the apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent. There are 13 apostles in the New Testament. That is 12 disciples minus Judas plus Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And then Paul in 1 Timothy 2.7 and then in 1 Corinthians 15.8-9. Paul says that he was the last apostle. The apostles were very unique Leaders, these men were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And they were appointed by Christ Himself during His earthly ministry. And they primarily belonged not to local churches, but to all the churches, to the universal church. They were the leaders in the first century of all the churches of the church. These are, we might call, capital A apostles. They were the primary leaders during the first century, and they were responsible for writing most of the New Testament of the Bible. So those are the apostles. Second, Paul says, we have prophets. We have prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They were mouthpieces of God who received and then passed on revelation. So they received words, revelation from God, and then they passed on this revelation to others. God said to the prophet Moses in Exodus 4.12, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. He's a prophet. 
And then Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. What's happening then in prophecy? He says, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Unlike apostles, most of the prophets in the New Testament, they belonged to individual local churches. And they would speak into different and various situations with reliable revelation. If you want to read an example, there's one in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. A lot more on prophecy and prophets in chapter 14. But, before we move on to this third category, which is teachers, let me clarify something about these first two God-appointed positions of leadership, that is, apostles and prophets. These two positions, they no longer exist. There are no longer apostles, and there are no longer prophets. They were part of the foundation beneath Christ's church. Now that's told to us in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read it to you. The second half of verse 19 and then verse 20. You, this is just talking to Christians like you and me, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone. So you should ask, well, how were they foundational? How were the apostles and the prophets the foundation of the church? And Paul says in that same letter, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, that is the gospel. Paul said, I'm writing to you about the gospel. You can see that I, I have knowledge, I have understanding, I have special revelation about the mystery of Christ, the gospel that has been, that has been obscured for so long and now is being made evident and clear through my words, Paul says. Which was not, Paul writes, made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. They are, they are together again. Now revealed through his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, the gospel was made known in a unique way to the apostles and to the prophets and that was done for them to pass it on, which is exactly what they did. Remember, the church did not have a Bible yet. That's something we take for granted, isn't it? This church in Corinth, where prophecy was very important, where prophecy was taking place, they did not have a Bible and so it was essential that the church have prophecy that they, 1 Thessalonians 5.20, not despise the prophets that God had given them. Not despise the prophecies that God had given them. Imagine it. How could we 
today, how would we operate and make decisions as a church or counsel one another without our Bibles? It would be impossible, wouldn't it? We would have no way of operating as a church, of counseling one another as a church, of making decisions as a church if we did not have the Bible, if we did not have the Word of God. They didn't have the Bible, but they had the Word of God. They had parts of the Bible. They had prophecy. The early church needed this. God gave it to them until Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, the foundation was laid. Until the foundation was laid. And then we ceased to have apostles and prophets in the church. They no longer exist because we have the Bible, plain and simple. Their ministry was to bring us God's word. We have the full extent of God's written word. So this is how it works. This is how God's word gets from God to your heart. Revelation, transmission, that's not the one in your car. Revelation, transmission, translation, illumination, and interpretation. These big words. First, revelation. That's what the apostles received. That's what the prophets received. God spoke to them. He was with their mouth telling them what to say, carrying them along by the Holy Spirit so they would know what to write, which is what we have in the Bible. That is God revealing Himself and revealing His truth directly to individuals. And what did they do? They wrote it down. They wrote down God's revelation. Then came transmission. That is the copying of these manuscripts, so these original manuscripts. They would write them out and then they would have to produce handwritten copies of these. What has to happen next? Translation. They were written in Hebrew. They were written in Aramaic. They were written in Greek. So then for it to go into other languages, it needs to be translated. Thank God we have many translations into English. So now we can have a Bible before us that is written in a language we understand, but it still is not in your heart. How does God's Word go from those pages now into your heart? And that is through illumination and interpretation. That is the Holy Spirit's work is not done. Now He is helping you, shining a light on God's Word to understand what God's Word means. What God's Word means to you and how it should be applied in your life. So what was still happening in the first century? Revelation was still happening. Transmission was still happening. Those things are no longer happening. Now we're translating still. And we are certainly being illuminated by the Spirit to understand His Word. And we're certainly being helped to interpret God's Word. So no more apostles. No more prophets. No more prophecy. No more new and fresh words from God. Not saying that God doesn't lead you. Not saying that God doesn't direct you by His Holy Spirit. That God doesn't guide you. That God doesn't burden you. But there is a big difference between that and the prophecy we read about in the first century. Which will become more clear. 
in chapters to come. But that is very important for us to understand. And it will be important as we move forward. 2 Peter 1.21 is no longer taking place. Men or women are not being carried along by the Holy Spirit to write out the Word of God. That is what is so dangerous about a book like Jesus Calling and the other books that Sarah Young has written because the impression that she certainly gives is that she is being carried along by the Holy Spirit to write to you as if she was communicating the words of God. That is not happening any longer. We have everything we need to know from God as it has been revealed in His written Word. So while the Holy Spirit is active and moving, what we're saying is there is a difference between what is happening today and what we read about in the first century. Again, I hope that will be more clear as we continue. Okay, teachers. Teachers, this is one more position of leadership. This one obviously still exists, though, in a different capacity than it did then. Here's the difference. Teachers are not receiving and passing on revelation anymore. If you thought that's what I'm doing every week, you were mistaken. I'm not sitting in my office and meditating, hoping to receive revelation from God so that I can pass it on. I am receiving and passing on illumination. That's what a teacher today is doing. I'm not receiving and passing on new revelation from God. I'm receiving and passing on illumination. Hopefully God is enabling me and gifting me to understand His Word. I'm not bringing you new words, but understanding of these words. And that's a great distinction. All pastors must be able to do this. 1 Timothy 3.2 Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. All must be able, though for some it's their focus. 1 Timothy 5.17, that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those, so not all of them, who labor in preaching and teaching. Teaching is very important. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. By the way, why is verse 13 so important. Did you catch what he said there? He told Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's still important. But why was the public reading of Scripture so important in first century Corinth? Remember, no one had a Bible yet. What a privilege we have. They did not have God's Word in its totality. It was still being written. It wasn't even done being written. And any copies there were, they had to be handwritten and they were extremely rare and expensive. And that was the case, think about this, for 14 centuries after Corinth. Consider a couple things. In light of that, Think about the privilege that we have today. 
I calculated this week that before any of us even showed up to this building today, there were at least 150 Bibles here waiting for us. That's not even including Bibles that are in boxes or the children's Bibles that might be in the classrooms. This building was just empty early this morning, and there were 150 Bibles at least just waiting here. There's about 200 of you here today, and I'm willing to bet that at least half of you either have a Bible or you have a Bible app on your phone. That would mean that we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 Bibles in this room right now. That is more Bibles than we have people. What a privilege. What a privilege that we can open up the Word of God whenever we want and we can read it. The second thing to consider... How important were these leaders in the early church? I'm a teacher. I'm a preacher. I'm nowhere near as important as those teachers were. Not even close. The apostles, the prophets, and the teachers. They were dependent on their teachers so much more than you are dependent on your teachers. That is when they would hear the word of God. They wouldn't have the opportunity that you have to to read it on their own and to study it on their own. So that's Paul's short list of gifted people. It's a ranked list because these three leaders were very important. They were the means that God used to get his word into his church. The apostles, the prophets, and then the teachers. Now five more. Five more kinds of gifted people. Then he writes miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but these gifts were evidently common in Corinth. They were gifts that they needed, and so God gave them to them. They are not ranked, but God does list various kinds of tongues Last, which is interesting because that is the gift that the Corinthians valued the most. So there is a rebuke in its placement in Paul's lists. Miracles, like raising people from the dead. You imagine that. Gifts of healing, like people given the ability to lay their hands on others and remove sickness. Or disease. Or disabilities. Helping. People with empathy who could draw alongside others and serve them. Administrating. Abilities to organize and to lead. Which was a desperate need in chaotic and frenetic Corinth. And... Finally, he writes various kinds of tongues. Various kinds of tongues. What is that? The word literally means language. We'll have a lot more to say 
in a couple chapters. But this was an ability. This was an ability that was given so that people could hear the gospel, or so they could hear prophecy, so they could hear God's word in their native language through people who had never studied their language. Imagine that. This gift first showed up at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Let me read you verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, that is, in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then there's an explanation of what was going on down in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So you had a lot of people who spoke a lot of different languages. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them, that is the apostles, speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Well, they could hear and understand because those apostles were being given the gift of tongues. And so they were able to speak in languages that they had never studied the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at that list of five gifted people, we obviously still have helping and administrating in the church, but there are no more miracle workers or healers or tongue speakers. Now let me clarify. There are still, and I didn't say there are no longer miracles. And I didn't say that there are no longer healings. And there may. And I have heard stories of spontaneous abilities given to someone to speak the gospel in a foreign language. But there are no longer individuals in the church who have been given these gifts to regularly exercise. This is historically and biblically evident. These gifts of miracles and healings and tongues, listen, and this also will become more clear as we go on, but these gifts of miracle working and healing and tongues, they were given to validate the authority and ministry and words of the apostles and the prophets. Before the Bible, before the Word of God, the Word of Christ, remember, was going forth through apostles and prophets. Well, why would anyone listen to them? Why would anyone believe that these words that they said were from God? Because their words were accompanied with miracles and healings and the speaking of tongues to validate their ministry. You should listen to these men. They are clearly speaking from God. Let me just read you a couple verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. What were those things? They were miracles. They were healings. They were the speaking of tongues. We read about them throughout the book of Acts and in Corinthians. Acts 2.43 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is Acts chapter 8 now, verse 6 and verse 39. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Well, why did they pay attention to what Philip was saying? When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. It validated him as a mouthpiece of God. Finally, Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So those are words. They attested to us what they heard from God while God also bore witness. How did he bear witness that these were his men? He bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, don't get me wrong. Supernatural things still happen. Miracles happen. God heals people, but men and women are no longer being gifted the same way they were gifted as we see in the book of Acts and Corinthians. And that will become very important. If someone claims to be a faith healer, they are not a faith healer. They are after your money. If someone claims to be a worker of miracles, they are not a worker of miracles. They are an imposter who could deceive you. Verses 29 and 30. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers... Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? These are obviously rhetorical questions that he's asking the Corinthians. Remember, they valued these gifts more than other gifts. The answer to each of those questions is obviously no. The point Paul is making is that God gifts people in his church uniquely. God gives to a church exactly what that church needs and so to the publicly and privately gifted in Corinth to those who feel superior and those who feel inferior Paul is saying do not boast if you have one of these he's telling them one of these spectacular gifts one of these public gifts and you feel superior do not boast also do not on the other end do not covet if you feel inferior, if you have a more private, behind-the-scenes gift, do not covet. What is the point he is making? God is sovereign over and in His church. God has arranged it this way. God has composed it this way. God has appointed these gifted people. Now finally, verse 31. Just one more verse. And in this verse... Paul brings application. So in conclusion, let's consider his instruction here. Verse 31, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, 
and I will show you a still more excellent way. That's a transitional verse. You hear it pointing back and then also leaning forward. So something about these spiritual gifts he had just talked about, but then he says, I'm going to show you an even better way. So it belongs to verses 27 through 30 of chapter 12, just as much as this verse belongs to chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Many of you know what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. It might be the most well-known chapter in the Bible. It's about love. Paul is about to give a treatise on love. So think about what Paul is saying. Not everyone has these higher gifts as he looks out at the Corinthians. There were some who wished they were apostles or wished they were prophets or wished they could speak in tongues. And they saw the attention they were getting, which was wrong. They saw how they seemed more valued than others and those with less gifts were being neglected by the church. So naturally, they were tempted to covet. And those who had those gifts, they were tempted to boast. Those higher gifts that he mentions here in chapter 31 are clearly prophecy and teaching. He'll clarify that in chapter 14. But not everyone had those higher gifts. Some of you don't have a gift or ability that you wish you had. And there were people in Corinth like that. And Paul writes to them and says that there's nothing wrong with, it is good to desire these higher gifts. Who wouldn't want to desire that you would have those gifts and abilities? And maybe pray that God would grow you in that way so that you could, what were they doing with those higher gifts? They were teaching the Word of God. They were sharing the Word of God. They were helping people with the Word of God in extraordinary ways. Who wouldn't want that? So desire those higher gifts, desire to receive and speak forth the word of God. But then he says, I will show you a still. Like those gifts are great, but I will show you a still more excellent way. Remember what I said at the beginning. God is sovereign over his church. God decides who gets what spiritual gift it is good to desire spiritual gifts but what is most important is pursuing love that's where he's leaning now love is more important spiritual gifts should not be our focus but rather spiritual fruit not the gifts of the spirit but the fruit of the spirit and in the next chapter he'll remind us that love is the greatest fruit of the spirit that's why we're called as Christians to what? To love. To love. To love God and to love our neighbor. We're enabled to do that by the Holy Spirit. In order to love, you need to know God's love. In order to freely love others, you need to know the free love of God. The love of God for you that is unchanging, that is not dependent on how well you're performing in your life, but a love that is like a father's affection for his child. This is the love that God has for his children that's described in the Bible. 
Do you know that love of God? Do you think about the love that God has for you, Christian? Do you consider this? Do you understand that you won't be able to love the way you're called to love without understanding God's love for you? We'll have what they had in Corinth, superiority and inferiority, looking down and boasting, looking up and coveting, unless we understand God's great love for us. God is sovereign over his church and over his people. If you're a Christian, God has sovereignly loved you. That means he didn't wait for you to love him, and then he loved you back. It means that before you were even created, God loved you. This is predestination. It's beautiful. That before you were even born, God chose to set his affection on you, to love you. He elected to save you. And so he made a way through atonement that you could be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, that your sins could be paid for. And then, Christian, at some point in your life, he opened your eyes to know his love for you. To feel his love for you. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, what you had heard before and meant nothing, all of a sudden meant everything. And you knew that God loved you. And that God made a way for you to be saved. And then he adopted you into his family. Where you will stand forever and ever. That is God's sovereign love for you Christians. And you need to know that love if you'll ever be able to love anyone else. For those of you who are here today and who are not Christians, have you heard of this love that God has for people? Have you heard this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you heard the good news that Jesus came and he lived and he suffered and he died and he rose from the dead? Never to die again. In the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. Our prayer as Christians would be that for those of you who are here who do not know Jesus, who do not yet love Jesus, that God would do in you what He has done in all of us. And that is that He would make Himself known to you even now as I'm speaking. And this would no longer be some story you hear about someone else. It would be your story. And you would know that God has chosen you that he has set his affection on you, that he has made a way for you to be saved, and then he has shared his good news with you so that you would believe. We would call you to believe this morning, to no longer trust in yourself. That hasn't gone well. It isn't going well, and I assure you it will not go well. And trust Jesus for salvation. For those of us who are Christians, we have this time of communion before us.
where we take this bread and we take this juice together that reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made in our place. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are here today and you are a baptized believer, you have turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ for salvation, and you are part of his church, part of a local church, whether it's this or another one, you're committed to a church that preaches the gospel, the same gospel you've heard here today, if that describes you, then please take communion with us today. We'll have leaders up front to serve you. If you'd come forward through the center aisle and take the bread and juice and return to your seat and then wait, and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for saving us. And thank you for teaching us every day how great the love is that you've lavished on us. Pray, God, that that would continue to change us and transform us and renew us so that we would be more like Jesus, that we would love you more, that we would love others more. Root out all our sin, we pray. Root out all our selfishness and evil deeds and thoughts and make us more like you for your glory and for the good of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.